Welcome to Historical USA. In this podcast, we discuss the people, places, and events that make up the fabric of America. In our last episode, we talked about James Oglethorpe and the founding of Savannah. And in this episode, we will see Oglethorpe again during the War of Jenkins' Ear. We're going to talk about how the war got such an interesting name and how Oglethorpe single-handedly defended British territory in Georgia at the Battle of Bloody Marsh. Comment down below, have you ever heard of the War of Jenkins' Ear? And if you would please share this video with a friend. In the last episode, we talked all about the Georgia colony, and we will get back to Savannah a little later in this episode. But first, I want to travel back to the signing of the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713. Now, some of the agreements that the treaty had made will have a long-lasting and a profound impact on the American colonies. If you remember, the Treaty of Utrecht had brought an end the War of Spanish Secession, but it left a whole host of problems in its wake, leading to a series of treaties and wars from 1718 up until 1760. These treaties were attempting to clarify some of the unclear and vague clauses in the Treaty of Utrecht particularly regarding British rights of trade with the Spanish colonies. To make things a little more difficult, in 1718, the Treaty of London established an alliance with Great Britain, France, and the Holy Roman Empire, and the Dutch Republic, all against Spain. <laughs> then, in 1720, there was the Treaty of The Hague, which ended the misbegotten war that resulted from that alliance. Then there was the Treaty of Madrid in 1721, followed by the Treaty of Seville in 1729, ending in a few Anglo-Spanish wars that primarily affected Europe. Suffice it to say, Europe was a big, huge mess of allies, wars, and treaties, and diplomatic paperwork filed everywhere. <laughs> All this bureaucracy and royal negotiations in Madrid, London, and Paris had created a nightmare for merchant ships. There was so much red tape that most of the merchants just said, screw it, and started smuggling goods and contraband, ignoring whatever refinements were stipulated in these many treaties. But Spain was not having any of that, and in response to the smuggling, formed the Spanish Guadacosta, or Coast Guard. And the Guadacosta was not messing around. Historian Philip Woodfine said, Once a ship had put in close to Spanish colonial coasts, it came under suspicion of being an illegal trader to settlements there and became liable to an investigation by the Guadacosta, which was commissioned to search where necessary to seize vessels carrying contraband cargo. Ships and crews in such cases were conveyed to a nearby colonial port, where an inquiry and often seizure followed. It was enough to have aboard the smallest quantity of Spanish colonial produce, or the Spanish coin of Ries, the pieces of eight which were the common currency in the whole Caribbean. Now, this absurd right of search and seizure had been negotiated between the Spanish and Great Britain as part of the Asiento de Negro, which is as bad as it sounds. 
What was the asiento? Well, the Spanish rarely engaged in the transatlantic slave trade directly from Africa itself, choosing instead to contract out the importation to foreign merchants from nations more prominent in that part of the world. The contract was a monopoly between the British crown and whichever merchant held it called the Asiento de Negro or an agreement of blacks. For some context, as Spain was expanding into the Americas in the late 1400s, they needed people to work the mines and the plantation that they were developing. They first used local indigenous people as free laborers and the Spanish treated them horribly. There were abuses recorded by Dominican friar Bartolome de Las Casas in his work, A Brief Account of the Destruction of the Indies. For 25 years, the Spanish tried to use native peoples as slave labor, but the indigenous people would not be so easily conquered, and New Spain would nearly collapse. The Spaniards and the indigenous people would war with each other. They would torture each other. There would be insurrection and uprising among those enslaved, but mostly disease had wiped out thousands of indigenous people and their population was on the verge of disappearing entirely. So the Spaniards had to look for another labor source. And unfortunately, that labor source was the importation of African slaves. But as I mentioned earlier, the Spaniards did not like to get their hands dirty when it came to capturing and enslaving or buying African people from West Africa, nor did they want to spend the money and invest in the ships and men that would be needed to fulfill and set up a trading operation like the transatlantic slave trade. So in 1517, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V or Carlos I, the King of Spain, granted a slaving contract to a Flemish nobleman named Laurent de Guno, who turned around and sold the contract to a group of Genoese merchants based in Seville. Even earlier in 1418, the Portuguese were given the blessing by the Catholic Church to begin exploring parts of Africa. And by as little as 1460, the Portuguese were using enslaved Africans to work sugar plantations on the island of Madeira. By 1481, the Portuguese had built the first European slave fort off the coast of what is now present-day Ghana. The Portuguese were the first Europeans to trade and profit from the African slave market, meaning that by the time the Spanish established the Asiento, the Portuguese were the experts in the African slave trade, and the contract would pass between the Genoese and the Portuguese for decades. If you are a merchant in the slave trade, there was a lot of money to be made if you could sell enslaved people to the Spanish colonies. Sadly, historian John G. Sperling wrote that those enslaved were treated nothing more like cattle. When a slave ship arrived in the Spanish-American port, the royal officers examined the enslaved for disease and measured them as many units of piazza de indias in order to compute the duties due to the king of Spain. Slaves in perfect health were counted as follows. From five to 10 years, they equaled one half a paisa. From 10 to 15, they equaled two thirds. From 15 to 30, they equaled one. And above 30, they equaled three fourths. Any smallness, deformity, or sickness would alter those measurements. 
It's also incredibly unfortunate that a single enslaved African might be divided into fractions of him or herself. Unsettling more, it does show up again echoed in the Three-Fifths Compromise of the United States Constitution, in which delegates agreed for the purpose of census-taking to count enslaved people as three-fifths of a human being. Thank goodness that is no longer practiced in America. What's even more unsettling is that from 1550 to 1595, the official records show that 36,000 enslaved Africans were imported to the Spanish-owned parts of South America. That's only the number we have recorded. I'm sure the number is probably much higher as there was a fair amount of smuggling going on by slave traders who did not hold a license to supply enslaved people. And if you wanted to hold parts of the Asiento contract, you had to have that license. Because of this, the Spanish would sell the Asiento off to the highest bidder. So the Asiento became a proverbial hot potato, going from the Portuguese to the Genoese in the 16th century, to the Dutch and the Germans in the 17th century, and to the French in the early 18th century. By the end of the War of Spanish Secession, in the signing of the Treaty of Utrecht, the Asiento, or as many called it, the Devil's Bargain, was now in the hands of Great Britain. And as I mentioned earlier, the only way that many merchants could really turn a profit despite all the red tape was by smuggling. The Guadacosta, in order to combat smuggling, became an elite maritime fighting force. Their fleet was quick and the Spanish government spared no expense in arming the guard with weaponized sloops. The Guadacosta had a clear mission to stop smuggling at whatever cost. This often led Guadacosta captains torture captains and brutalize British crews. The Guadacosta took whatever they wanted, gold, goods, and ships, and would capture crews and use them as slave labor. For Guadacosta, it didn't matter if it was illegal or if the evidence of smuggling was there or not. They did it anyways. As you can imagine, complaints from British merchants began to pile up in Parliament. One instance saw the owner of two British galleys, the Betty and the Anne, seized, taken to Spanish ports, and sold at auction. Their crews were taken prisoner and thrown into filthy rat-infested prisons by the Guadacosta. Another instance saw a brig called Robert taken and her captain, an Englishman named Story King, tortured for three days by the Guadacosta. They burned matches between his fingers and crushed his thumbs. And the story goes on in gruesome detail. There were instances of the Guadacosta chopping off captain's hands, severed appendages, boiled fingers, just the most gruesome acts of torture you can possibly imagine. These guys, the Guadacosta were not messing around, and they were definitely people you did not want to see on your bow or your stern. Unfortunately, though, one April in 1731, Captain Robert Jenkins was filled with dread when he spotted the Guadacosta off his merchant ship, the Rebecca. Author Robert Gotti described the incident in his book titled The War of Jenkins' Ear, The Struggle of North and South America, saying the Guadacosta sloop called either La Isabella or the San Antonio, depending on the source, drew closer across the glassy sea. Her 16 sweeps striking the water, rhythmic, inevitable. Presently, she came with inhaling distance, but the captain of the sloop eschewed the hailing horn and began the conversation with three cannon shots across 
the Rebecca's bow. The Spanish captain then identified himself as one Don Leon Fandino, a notorious Guadacosta privateer. Fandino called for a delegation to bring the Rebecca's sailing orders to him for inspection. Jenkins then sent his first mate, bearing only Rebecca's clearance from the governor of Jamaica, expecting this document would give sufficient satisfaction as Spain was in a time of peace with Britain. But Fandino did not accept these clearances. He seized the first mate as a hostage and returned the boat bearing a dozen armed Guadalcosta men. Fandino then boarded the Rebecca offering no courtesies to the British captain. Fendino and his men began searching the ship, breaking hatches, lockers, and chests. They were looking for smuggled Spanish raw materials or qualities of Spanish money generated from the illegal sales of British manufactured goods in the Spanish colonies. Jenkins and his crew stood silently as the Guadacosta ransacked his ship. After two hours of searching and finding nothing, Fendino went into a rage, resorting to terror tactics from which the Guadacosta had become infamous for in the West Indies. First, he tied Jenkins to the foremast and forced the Welshman to watch as Guadacosta guards brutally beat the Rebecca's young black cabin boy. They did this in an effort to extract the location of any money hidden aboard, but the cabin boy knew nothing and could not reveal anything, and they beat him until he was knocked unconscious. Fendino was convinced, though, that the Rebecca was hiding some kind of treasure, and his terror tactics only increased. Fendino threatened to hang Jenkins and began to beat him. They also began choking Jenkins to the point of strangulation over and over and over again. Each time, Fendino demanded that Jenkins revealed the whereabouts of his treasure. And each time, Jenkins asserted that they might torture him to death, but he could not make any other answer. The Guadacosta threatened to burn the Rebecca to the waterline, along with her crew, all who were English Protestants. In Fendino's eyes, they were all obstinate heretics, and thus good candidates for a Spanish Inquisition style ato de vie, or a public penance slash torture for anyone that was not Catholic and considered a heretic. As Fendino beat Jenkins to the point of unconsciousness, he was not able to get any sort of confession from the captain. Fendino then, in one last effort, ordered Jenkins to be bound again to the mast, held a pistol to the captain's head, and screamed, confess or die. But Jenkins had nothing to confess, and Fendino, beside himself, took hold of Jenkins' left ear and with his cutlass slid it down, and another of the Spaniards took hold of it and tore it off, but gave him the piece of his ear again and made threats against the king, saying the same will happen to him, King George II, if caught doing the same smuggling. After threatening to scalp Jenkins as well, Fendino stripped the Rebecca of everything portable, including bedding and clothing for the crew, leaving them stranded naked on the deck. From Captain Jenkins, they additionally took a watch of gold, clothes, and linens of a moderate value of 112 pounds sterling. They also took a tortoiseshell box and some old silverware. Fendino also confiscated the Rebecca's navigational equipment, maps, compasses, sextant, and her stores of candles. Fendino virtually left the Rebecca wallowing in darkness on unknown seas in an act to sabotage the ship. 
The story would have probably been entirely forgotten in colonial history if it wasn't for Benjamin Franklin, who had published a detailed account of the incident in the Pennsylvania Gazette six months after. Franklin's account offers so much detail that it is possible he spoke perhaps to one of the crewmen aboard Jenkins' ship that fateful day. Now, after Fendino and the Guadacosta left the Rebecca, Jenkins' crew unbound their captain, bandaged his bloody stump of an ear, and set sail for the closest port, Havana where they hoped to meet with another British ship from whom they might be able to procure sufficient necessities to enable them to proceed on their voyage back to Britain. But as they sailed towards Havana, Fendino, lurking just off the horizon, called a warning to Jenkins, telling him to make for open waters or he really would set the ship and crew on fire. It was a long voyage home, and without a compass, Jenkins navigated by the stars. After two months of many hardships and perils, the Rebecca crossed into the River Thames. Jenkins would also preserve his ear in a bottle, and would personally present an account of his suffering and the suffering of his crews to King George II, who was shocked and appalled. Furious letters flew back and forth between Spanish and English courts. British ambassador Benjamin Keane made a formal protest to the Spanish king, and members of parliament in opposition to the Pacific policies of First Minister Robert Warpole agitated for a more vigorous attitude toward the Spaniards in the Caribbean. Rear Admiral Stewart again specifically mentioned the case to the Spanish governor of Cuba as part of a series of complaints for which he demanded satisfaction. But despite all of this, nothing happened. The appalling incident was dropped and life went on as it had before. It would be years before the story of the Rebecca and Jenkins' ear would be of interest to the British people. As I mentioned earlier, Jenkins' ear was just one incident in many between British merchants and the Guadacosta. So how did an entire war become named after one incident? Well, obviously the Guadacosta is not going to stop their operations in the Caribbean, and the British are clearly not going to stop smuggling. So it is only natural that the diplomatic tensions would continue to rise between Britain and Spain. The British first minister, Sir Robert Walpole, tried diplomatically to cool tensions, but he was under a lot of public pressure to send additional troops to the West Indies and to send additional troops to Gibraltar. Gibraltar was one of those parts of the Treaty of Utrecht that forced Spain to hand over the rock to Britain, a territory that Spain desperately wanted back. As the English began to beef up their defenses in Gibraltar and the West Indies, King Philip V suspended the Asiento and confiscated British ships in Spanish ports. Again, Walpole tried to seek diplomatic resolutions to the situation, but the British press were having none of it. Newspapers resurrected Jenkins' story and used it to shock the public, turning the citizens more and more against Spain. The public wanted retribution, and diplomacy wasn't good enough for them. With repeat violations of treaties by both the Spanish and the British, Wapel was forced to declare war on October 23, 1739, and the War of Jenkins' Ear had begun. As I promised, we are headed back to Savannah, as one of the major players in the War of Jenkins' Ear would be General James Oglethorpe. Privateering was a big issue in treaty violations, 
by the Guadacosta and smuggling by the British. But there are also major land disputes. As I mentioned in the last episode, the colony of Georgia was settled mainly to protect the cash colony of South Carolina from the dreaded Spanish in Florida. This left Oglethorpe in a defensive position to not only guard against the Spanish during the War of Jacob's Ear, but for him to make several passes into Florida as well. In January of 1740, Oglethorpe was able to seize two Spanish forts, Fort Picolostas and Fort San Francisco de Pupo, which lay west of St. Augustine, Florida along the St. John's River. Oglethorpe also tried to take the fort at St. Augustine, Fort Castillo de San Marcos. But if you remember from our last few episodes, that fort was not easily conquered and Oglethorpe had failed. He then retreated to Fort Frederica, opting to shore up his defenses and wait for a Spanish invasion. For years, Oglethorpe had been begging his trustees in England and the colonies of North and South Carolina to aid in the defense of Georgia. In 1737, Oglethorpe got his wish when Parliament appointed him Commander-in-Chief of all British forces in the colonies of South Carolina and Georgia, though the size of those forces were remarkably small. And Oglethorpe knew that he was up against a formidable force in Spanish Florida. So he went to Inverness, Scotland and recruited a company of Scots to migrate with their families and settle at New Inverness, Georgia, or what is now today the city of Darien, the county seat of McIntosh County, Georgia. The Scottish unit was known as the Highland Independent Company, or on the official record listed as Oglethorpe's Regiment of Foot. But even with the Scots, Oglethorpe was still outmanned by the Spanish. For four months, the governor of St. Augustine, Manuel de Montana, organized the Spanish invasion of Georgia. By the summer of 1742, he had approximately 4,500 to 5,000 soldiers under his command and a fleet of 60 ships ready to attack. Oglethorpe prepared his defenses of St. Simon's Island accordingly. He established a fort on the island, Fort Frederica, on a high bluff overlooking the Frederica River. Oglethorpe had a mix of British regulars, Scottish rangers, and Yamacraw Indians, as well as a few local citizens. In total, he had a measly thousand men fighting force. On July 5th, the Spanish landed on the southern tip of St. Simon's Island and used the nearby fort St. Simon's as their headquarters. On the morning of July 7th, the Spanish had set out several scouts to advance northward towards Fort Frederica. The scouts were meant to assess the landscape and plan the attack. However, they were met by a body of English rangers and the two units exchanged fire. Upon hearing the skirmish, Oglethorpe mounted his horse and galloped to the scene, followed by reinforcements. He charged directly into the Spanish line, which scattered as additional forces arrived. Oglethorpe then posted a detach to defend his position and returned to Frederica to prevent another Spanish landing on the northern coast and hopefully to recruit reinforcements. As the Spanish prepared for another attack, the English had set up an ambush in the surrounding marshes. As the Spanish began their attack on the region, English forces fired upon them from behind a heavy cover of bush. This caused mass confusion within the smoke-filled swamp, resulting in another Spanish defeat. It was during this second attack that the battle receives its name, the Battle of Bloody Marsh. The attack killed roughly 200 Spaniards, while Oglethorpe lost 
lost only about 50 men. Oglethorpe continued to press the Spanish, trying to dislodge them from the island. A few days later, approaching a Spanish settlement on the south side, Oglethorpe had learned of a Frenchman who had deserted the British and gone to the Spanish. Worried that the deserter might report just how small Oglethorpe's forces were, he spread out his drummers to make them sound as if they were accompanying a large force. Oglethorpe also planned to throw off the Spanish with some fake intelligence by writing a letter to the deserter, addressing him as if he were a spy for Oglethorpe, saying that the man just needed to continue his stories until Britain could send more men. Oglethorpe planted the letter on a prisoner, hoping that the prisoner would take it to a Spanish officer, which he did. The Spanish promptly executed the Frenchman, and the timely arrival of reinforcements in British ships fueled the misconception among the Spanish that the British reinforcements were much larger than they actually were. The Spanish would leave St. Simons, ending the last invasion of colonial Georgia. For months, Oglethorpe considered counterattacks against Florida, but he could never find the right conditions. And by then, the war had focused from the Americas to Europe, as the War of Jenkins' Ear was absorbed into the War of Austrian Secession, meaning that arms and troops were not readily available for any sort of invasion of Florida. Georgia and Florida would continue to have minor skirmishes back and forth throughout the years, and Oglethorpe would leave Georgia altogether in 1744, never to return for the rest of his life. The War of Austrian Secession came to an end in 1748. Well, the treaty that ended the war dealt with issues of a wider conflict it did not specifically address the causes of Jenkins' ear. Meeting two years later, in 1750, the British and Spanish concluded the Treaty of Madrid. In this document, Spain bought back the asiento for £100,000, while agreeing to allow Britain to trade freely in Spanish colonies. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we are on the cusp of the French and Indian War. I'm so excited to delve into that. As many don't know, the French and Indian War is also called the War That Made America, and so I'm really excited to get started working on that and sharing more with you about the French and Indian War and some of the players in that war that we will see on the road to revolution. Also, next week we have History Hour. History Hour is back. I did take a little hiatus for spring break, but we will be back with an excellent guest, which I'm excited to announce in the coming days. So stay tuned for that. If you haven't already, please smack that bell. Please subscribe to the podcast and share this with a friend. And I will see you in the next episode. Bye.